0: This is Better read Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. And Katie is off today, but she'll be back next week because she has to tell us about Pilgrim's progress. None of us can do it. (laughs) Um, But today we are discussing Inkle and Yarico, which is a 17th and 18th century story with uh, many versions about an English merchant whose life is saved in America by a native woman whom he then sells into slavery.
1: Yep. (laughs)
0: Cool. Yeah. Um Oh, and she's pregnant. We'll get there. Uh, the version we read is Sir Richard Steele's in a seventeen eleven edition of the Spectator. So, Tristan, why Inkle and Yarico?
1: Yeah, so, unless you're an eighteenth centuryist, you've probably never heard of the Inkle and Yarico story today. But for almost a hundred years, actually hundred and fifty, really, like we're talking sixteen fifties into the early nineteenth century. It was an extremely famous cultural object, and there are so many versions of the Inkle and Yarko story in the 1700s in particular. In some ways, Steels is regarded as the OG uh, because after the spectator version, that's when you start to see this explosion of retellings, poems, plays, a fucking comic opera in the 1780s, which we'll talk about. Like, what? Right. But Steele isn't even the first time this story was in print, uh, which which he acknowledges in in the Spectator. His source text is Richard Liggins' wildly racist "True and Exact History of the Island of Barbados," from uh, which was published in sixteen fifty seven.
0: True and exact stories are always like. Good. You gave yourself straight the fuck away, my friend, as soon as you put that at <laughs> yes. <in> the front.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, and I mean, it's not like sort of historiography and the creation of white supremacy. There are a number of Caribbean texts from the 17th 18th century. Uh, ligands. uh Edward Long's History of Jamaica, which basically like history as and, – and, and which also has the, kind of like true and exact title to it, uh, which is like, yes, a true and exact – taxonomy of the races you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Exactly. no it's a it's a it's a red flag, <laughs> for a sure. flag. true and exact but yeah so that's that's in uh, 1657 the first time this is ever in print and one reason i've long been fascinated by this tale is that it seems to have registered so differently depending on the historical moment and ideological or, or even like literary concerns of who was writing so we'll get into this but for Steele the obvious anti-slavery implications seem less central to a bunch of other stuff misogyny for one but also thousands of years of dumbass literary debates about whether men or or women are more faithful lovers like that, that kind of shit (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, snooze and also misogyny, right?
0: That we just talked about in Persuasion.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, there's, yeah, and, and uh, uh, there is there is a very uh, Ad Elliot uh, quality to the, the spectator's <laughs> uh, uh, version of the story. Yeah. But, so as the 18th century goes on and the transatlantic slave trade grows to massive proportions, just kind of exponential increase, Inkle and Yarico became seen very much as an anti-slavery narrative one that is often quite racist in its construction but that is you know definitely deployed in in support of the the growing abolition movement uh, also so i should i should say uh, in the 18th century abolition particularly in the british context largely refers to abolition of the slave trade not and slave the practice yes uh, that, that as the that which would follow a bit later in the 19th century
0: still Way before the U.S., although of yeah. course, like it doesn't have the same quite enormous economic benefit,
1: right? Yeah, yes, the yeah the yeah, and, and well, right. The, the, benefit yes. the fact that the British Empire, uh, we already were in the second British Empire, so like South Asia, that that certainly, yeah. I mean, the the the, the economic and material basis of the white supremacist system is is important for sure. Yeah. Uh, but so like Yariko, so like that that development, right? Yariko herself goes from being read as Indian in the early versions of this story to increasingly read as black or, or African. So I'm just really interested in one how this story that was so famous basically disappears from the public consciousness after the early nineteenth century, and two how it does get read in those very different ways at different moments. And Megan, I'm particularly curious to hear your thoughts on the Steele story, precisely because of the longer historical questions it raises. So 18th century empire and that period of slavery and colonialism obviously has such a foundational role in 19th and 20th century constructions of race and, and white supremacy. So I've wanted to talk about this story with someone who works in critical race theory, and and also at the other end of that kind of tra- historical trajectory for for a long time. Just I mean, because I'm I'm sure there are a, a lot of interesting uh, sinews to that kind of conversation.
0: Well, and it helps us to see like something that is right at the center of our historical present, which is the white supremacist invention of race qua race in the first place, right? So like that she can be you know, sort of, um, fungible as a racial subject is interesting, but also like, doesn't surprise me at all. Right. Like, because she's deployed as whatever she needs to be for the commentary.
1: For sure. And, and I, I'm, I think we've talked about this on the show in the past, but, um, and this is by, this is not in any way a claim that, Oh, like the 1700s weren't racist and that in the 1800s, like, <laughs> racism. Totally. like no, 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 no. <laughs> but you know, 18th century and earlier ideas of race are like climatological. Like if you if you live in a certain part of the globe, just like by virtue that that, that you and 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 because of uh, like the climatological explanation, uh, race was fungible in a way that like the 19th mm-hmm. century eugenicist biological racist claims really. It's like no, it's like this is like inherent to human as species in a way that is not part of uh, of, of, of of earlier moments to the same extent. Which I think just makes the it makes the concept it makes the construction different
0: totally well and then once that sort of gives way to culturalist accounts in the early 20th century that has its own effect too right so like eugenicist and culturalist accounts of race overlap to a great degree, but they're also mm-hmm. like, white supremacy is always bad. <laughs> yeah, Yes, yeah, so, you no,
1: know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just because like this it, genre shift. Right, no, and, and and even, I mean, it's not like you don't find things that look like the biological racism in the 18th totally, century, yeah, but yeah. just, it is, I mean, I think it is definitely fair to say that race was understood to be much more kind of fungible in the pre-19th century moment than it became, like, particularly in the yeah. US with the buildup to like, towards the Civil War.
0: Right. Because I think it's like, it's a strategy, like racialization is also a strategy of of, uh, material conditions. For sure. So I, I actually haven't read Richard Steele and Addison Boulevard since college. (laughs) So this sounded good. That was when I was a fake, sort of like side hustle 18th (laughs) centuryist. Thanks to most colleges, Kirsten Saxton, who I think is one of those people who could Fully convert you to an 18th centuryist if you were not already in a committed relationship to a literary period. <laughs> and I learned a lot about the strange approaches that 18th century periodical culture took to cultural production. In my notes, I say yeah. magazine culture, and I say that because it's like, in the 20th century, that's what this would have been.
1: Yeah, well, right, and and the right. I mean, the and the I mean, one of the cool things about the 18th century is like the magazine was a thing, but it, like how it differed from the newspaper, or like the other. It's you know, it's uh, those categories are being kind of produced at this sort of moment.
0: Well, and I really like that it actually shares with the mid 20th century novelists and essayists screaming at each other about shit.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Very much so. Like
0: they really I mean, we will get to this in some later episode where like Richard Wright and Zora Neale Hurston and James Baldwin and like, all of them are just like yelling at each other in magazines and publications and it's fucking dope. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the New York intellectuals. Anyway, I like I like publication periodicals history. I think it's cool. And then Tristan and I, you've taught this class on literature and citizenship that helped me to sort of like develop more of this background.
1: Still one of my favorite classes ever.
0: Still totally awesome. We'll do it again. I am only changing like one thing. And it was great. And Paul Gilroy
1: um not what we're changing (laughs) no
0: not changing that please no and this is very short that's cool i like (laughs) that but it also is like baffling yeah and i it's like how can i have a hard time wrapping my head around something that's so short Mm -hmm. because and it's in part because of that right like it doesn't actually give you any purchase on its text or something like it's it's really hard to access it yep So I was like, you know, but it's probably wrong to try and compare it. So I was like, is this doing weird like Pocahontas business or are they like?
1: No, I I, I don't think that's weird at all. I think that this I think the Pocahontas story and this very much kind of work together at that okay. moment. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and then I was like, are we trying to do Rousseau so, but like with characters? Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, oh, maybe it's like Robinson Crusoe. And he's like, well, I met this th- this person and then we were pals or whatever. My servant, which of course is quite different in this, but it's really, for me, it's an exemplar of something that is difficult to parse without some historical understanding. Like if you read it in high school, you'd be like, I, I have no fucking idea. Like I don't, I have nothing. <laughs> no. And possibly uses without a materialist analysis, because it's not really like a, like a story, <laughs> no and <laughs> the way we're yeah. used to that.
1: Yeah, it's no, it's it's not. It's it's like, it's like an essay or a you know a newspaper item or something. Yeah, a yeah, fart.
0: I don't know. What it yeah, is. yeah,
1: fart. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but that's also that. That was like, dude. That's why you come to this podcast, man. You don't do book club shit here. We don't do like, why is this a good story? We do historical materialism. Yep. If you haven't been listening from ninety-one episodes,
1: <laughs> now you
0: know. And also, no one is tuning into this as their first episode. Like, <laughs> no, 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 this, yeah, this is
1: yeah. We just we just did a couple of uh, greatest hits. This 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 is a this, this is, not is one for, of this is for the better at the dead connoisseurs. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, we we you're here, we love you. But if this is your first go round, just get you know, like do. Pride and Prejudice, or or On the Road, like, a book (laughs) of friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) Don't, no, that's not why people are picking this up. So, right, but that's, like, we care about that shit, and I, that's central to my understanding of literature. Also, like, there isn't so much of that sort of, like, fash shit as last week. (laughs) No. Um, So that's good. But then I was like, well, but also like, okay, well, then I guess I get violent imperialism
1: uh, instead. But
0: like, I I love a change of pace.
1: Yeah, sure. You know? Sure. I mean, you know, not like there's not uh, cross conversations there either.
0: Oh, certainly.
1: (laughs) No, exactly.
0: But like 20th century whipping your dick out to be like this is the bridge to the future is like does not seem to be quite what's happening here.
1: No, uh, no, (laughs) certainly not.
0: It's not that. So today we are talking about the constructions of race, slavery, and empire, and what it might mean to read these in a, in a long historical sense. And then we're talking about its genre, especially its concerns with romance, and maybe a bit about the periodical. So uh, what happens? In these, yeah, this is, in these quick <laughs> eight pages.
1: I know this. This is going to be quick, and J.K. I thought it was going to be, but it turns out the summary might actually be longer than the story itself. Because, <laughs> as Megan said, there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of sort of context here, um, and and I'll have even more to say about context. Um, and, but you know, I I do think the story generates so many different kinds of readings that we're we're not going to run out of stuff to talk about. Even though it's like it's yeah, I mean it's eight page or three pages depending on the edition you have. So, okay. Spectator number 11, which is published on the 13th of March, 1711. It's a very recent.
0: uh, 300 (laughs) um, years ago by Richard Steele and Addison Boulevard.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So structurally, this looks a lot like other spectator stories, essays. Uh, Mr. Spectator, and I'll say a little bit more about that persona or character later. He walks into a scene and silently observes some dipshittery, met with anti-dipshittery. So we have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It's basically the dialectic is what's
0: happening. I'm so glad you brought Mr. Hegel to town. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Hegel, <laughs> uh, Hag- Hag- well, yeah, Hegel, and I think Steele would very much confused each other had they met, but they, you know, one was log dead, with the other is bored. Yeah. So. Point being,
0: Uh, Marx liked Hegel, so we have to begrudgingly (laughs) like Hegel.
1: I mean, yeah, Marx taught Hegel what was actually interesting about what Hegel said.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) So, okay, so in, in this story, Mr. Spectator is going to visit Arietta, a woman, quote, visited by persons of all sexes who have any pretense to wit and gallantry. She is in that time of life which is neither affected with the follies of youth or infirmities of age, and her, she's guess, twenty-two. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, she, yeah, she, she she's must be twenty-two here, uh, and uh, and her conversation is so mixed with gaiety and prudence that she is agreeable both to the young and old her behavior is very frank without being in the least blamable. And as she is out of the tract of any amounts of ambitious pursuits of her own, her visitants and entertain her with accounts of themselves very freely, whether they concern their passions or their interests. And, uh, yeah, Megan, the, the, uh, the, the, the jerk off motion you were doing. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> like that is, you know, that, that is a, that is an appropriate response to a lot of spectators. stories.
0: Yeah. Really.
1: So I mean, well, I, it's a fa- it's a really fascinating uh, thing that, uh, and at same mode, but uh, yeah, I mean, it can, it can be a little much.
0: Also, like, isn't this this lovely person who's willing to be a free therapist to all these people?
1: <laughs> yeah, right, for sure. Uh, gendered labor. You know, think, right, at the but so Arietta, like, as we can see, she here occupies the anti-dipshit pole of the spectator dialectic. And yeah, I I am being reductive as to the spectator forum, but this is what these essays do or these stories in the spectator. They set up some middle way, Protestant, bourgeois balance (laughs) and moderation that then some dipshit or group of dipshits challenge further underscoring how they're dipshits. And that's not the mode of behavior that you should follow so we're told that Arietta was introduced to Mr. Spectator by Will Honeycomb, who's a who's a I know that name won't mean anything to to, to our listeners, but he's a spectator fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a he's like this X rake. Uh, and and yeah, so which is important because like educating would be gentlemen not to do aristocrat rake hours, but instead like bourgeois man of virtue hours is a big fixation of what the, the
0: least fun. About. Yeah, the least yes. fun narrative of yes it's
1: uh, born conversion. in a century that was actually a lot of fun in many ways and committed itself to making the century less fun
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> less yeah, fun. yeah but... no a super fun literary moment like yeah yeah, yeah very yeah. sexy but you know let's make it less fun
1: <laughs> so anyway uh Ms- mr spectator finds arietta engaged in heated debate with yes a dipshit i've warned you about this and they're talking about whether men or women are worse to date, uh, or as the essay puts it, that the old topic of constancy and love. And so uh, this probably isn't surprising. The dipshit is doing the incel women are trash position. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here's here's what the, they don't like
0: th- me, so they're all bitches.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. No. That's that. We can move on. Yeah. He would cover this point. Uh, no. So like here's and here's how Steele frames that. He went on with great facility in repeating what he talks every day of his life. Cool. And with the ornaments of ins- insignificant laughs and gestures, enforced his arguments by quotations out of plays and songs which allude to the prejudices of the fair and the general levity of women. Methought he, he strove to shine more than ordinary in his talkative way, that he might insult my silence and distinguish himself before a woman of Ariana's taste and understanding. She had often an inclination to interrupt him, but could find no opportunity oh, dear.
0: <laughs>
1: this. till the uh, till the larab ceased of itself, uh which it did not till he had repeated and murdered the celebrated story of the Ephesian matron. So we're academics, a uh, number of people in our audience are academics, and we all know this dude from conferences, right? He's the the more a comment than a question guy, except even more in in this case. <laughs> I
0: also like that that uh, it has a great deal of a cultural reference, right? So he's like, I have to quote from stories and plays. Yes. So he's literally like, I'm red pilled
1: yes <laughs> yes yeah, he's doing
0: exactly. exactly that he's like here's a here's a <laughs> cultural point of reference that we all know and i'm gonna i'm gonna do the most blatant misinterpretation humanly possible
1: yeah he's he, yeah he, he's he's a big stupid uh in addition to everything else, big stupid pants yeah exactly um so uh, here's one moment in which my summary grows past the the confines of what it's summarizing. Steele doesn't actually repeat the Ephesian matron story because he didn't really need to. It was kind of an 18th century commonplace. Then um, you don't but,
0: need to do it now, and we all know. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I think no, nobody
1: does. I don't. No, 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 exactly. And uh, and yes, I mean, I could just leave it there, but I do actually. The story is so fucked up that it, it bears like what he actually was. Uh, what 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 the uh what 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 Mr. Dipshit was dropping into the middle of this so the ephesian matron uh it comes from petronius the the satiricon um petronius is a first century uh uh, common era roman satirist uh actually nero is when the reign of nero is when he was writing yeah it's it's kind of it's sort of like yeah the the late of the everything's great yeah everything's great yeah And, and basically the ephesian matron there's this lady the ephesian matron her husband is dead, and she's just spending twenty four seven wailing by the body and the tomb, as one does uh, in, in the ancient world. And this Roman soldier who is guarding crucified corpses nearby, because it's Roman times, very normal, right? <laughs> so, well, but
0: also like we did have a minor incident in which apparently somebody came back to life. So I think well, probably right. yeah, yeah, like... yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You got it. yeah, exactly. You bet. You better better uh, yeah better keep an eye on that. Or, Everybody
0: you know, else from now yes. on.
1: Yes, or or some some like. Uh, Quirky doomsday cult could become like one of the world's dominant religions if you for don't watch second. out.
0: The Lenny Bruce joke, where you know, if it were the 20th century, they'd be wearing little uh, electric chairs on chains. Yeah, Runway. yeah.
1: Oh, yes, yes. A very famous Lenny Bruce joke. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
0: We've been talking about 50s comedy a lot this week, <laughs> Tristan and my text messages. So get ready yeah. for some dumb bits. Reaching, <laughs> reaching reachin back
1: though it's cool to crash at very 18th century actually mm-hmm. um so yeah so this robot soldier's gr- guarding these crucified corpses and he hears the ephesian matron wailing in the tomb and he goes into the tomb he's like why sad about husband we can bone and she's like yes right here in tomb um uh, and, and and yeah this is a much better idea than starving myself over this dead guy let's let's do that instead. Um, The problem is they're banging so much that one of the crucified dude's families is able to steal the body and holy shit, the Roman soldiers, like, I am so fired, are probably going to get crucified or beheaded or whatever they do. So what the fuck do we do? And the bright idea they hit on it, it's pretty good, actually, is we'll just throw the Ephesian matron's dead husband up on the cross so no one notices the execute dude's body is gone. It totally a body detail. switch. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: This is a, it's a classic trope. We all yes. recognize it.
1: Yes. As I said, Steele doesn't give us that story other than to note that it's the story that the dipshit told, but his readers would have 100% gotten the point. Uh, so the, the the dipshit is saying, women will literally fuck a hot soldier in your tomb and defile your body, bro, bro's first bro, right? <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so. Yeah.
1: So, well, you know, Marietta, no, no
0: respect at all.
1: Yeah. No, no respect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Rodney, so, we're right?
0: going to do this all. <laughs> yeah, Katie's not here to keep us on a, on a leash of what's actually <laughs> funny.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, as I said, digressive is very 18th century mode. So but Arietta, she occupies the anti dipshit dialectical position. So she, of course, has to own the hell out of this guy. And boy, does she ever. Quoted again, for the text, Arietta seemed to regard this piece of raillery as an outraged unto her Raylory, sex. Raillery,
0: indeed. Yeah. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: As indeed, I have always observed that women, whether out of a nicer regard to their honor or what other reason I cannot tell, are more sensibly touched with those general aspersions which are cast upon their sex than men are by what is said of theirs. It's like, yeah, I mean, usually the person occupying the marginalized position is a little, little bit more attuned to that sort of thing, perhaps. Right? So Arietta's is like basically. Cool story. That's only two thousand years old. The first time I ever heard it, I fell off a dinosaur. Uh, <laughs> citation there, John C. Riley, Step Brothers. <laughs> so, yeah. and she does actually does a very fine Anne elliott thing, as we said. You know, like yeah, well, literature is full of shitty women because shitty men write all of it. I mean, what what do you want, right? Yeah. And and then she goes, okay, look, buddy. If we're telling stories, I just read History of Barbados, and I've got a fucking cool ass story for you. So here we go. <laughs> so, oh. so here it is. And if you're wondering what where how, where's Inkle and Yoriko, we're getting to. it. Patience, please. So <laughs> Mr. Thomas Inkle of London, aged twenty, uh, and age twenty years, embarked in the Downs on the good ship called the Achilles. Bound for the West Indies on the 16th of June, 1647, in order to improve his fortune by trade and merchandise.
0: Why do they keep naming their boats after shit that's like, you know, you guys, this might get, you might get a little bonked on the rocks in the back of your boat and something bad might, like, it's, it's, it's like why I named my GPS Cassandra. Like, we know.
1: Right, right. Yeah, no. And, and apparently, uh, this, I was reading in, a, in a, an edition I'll talk about that the Achilles, like a, a lot of the, the details of the story change, but the, the ship name, the Achilles is always present, which is, is fascinating. And I, I don't, I mean like Achilles swift footed, like trade, like the speed of trade or something, but also like, yeah, the kind of like tragic flaw. I don't know, but you're right. It's like, yeah, like cool, cool name. Right. So yeah, so we, we get, he's, he's a big trade guy. Uh, our adventure was the third son of an eminent citizen, uh, uh, citizen of London, the, like fine mm. financier, basically, who had taken particular care to instill into his mind an early love of gain by making him a perfect master of numbers and consequently giving him a quick view of loss and advantage and preventing the natural impulses of his passions by prepossession towards his interests, which is a nice little anti-capitalist mm-hmm. dunk. And I should say as much shit as I've been giving the spectator for kind of producing the, the bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie of the 18th century – There is a ton of skepticism in in its pages toward the London financial class and trade generally. So it's not, I mean, we're not, we're, you know, we're like capital is not, uh, I mean, yes, like this is a kind of a bourgeois ethos, but like capital is still seen as new and like a problem in Mm -hmm. ways that, yeah, I mean, we could, we should have stayed with that thought. right?
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Pursue that one a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So uh, the ship gets to the main of America. So we're not in the islands. We're on you know the you know maybe the coast of South America or Central America or something like that. I
0: love how, given that this is the 18th century, they could be anywhere from like Brazil to Maine, and it's all like, yeah. Oh. Yes. oh yeah,
1: yeah, yes. No, I mean, yeah, was, you know, it was like you go past the coast and it's this giant black Blob. space, black yeah. space on, on many maps. Uh, I mean, Spanish maps would have been a bit more detailed, but certainly not English right. maps. Yeah. So and and it being the 18th century, they are, of course, attacked by Indians who fuck them up, kill most of the crew except for Inkle, um, who is saved by a sorry beautiful- Sorry about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, no, 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 one, no one should be sorry about that. And yeah, Inkle saved by a beautiful Indian maid named Yariko. Uh, and here's another quote. If the European was highly charmed with the limbs, features and wild graces of the naked American, the American was no less taken with the dress, complexion and shape of a European covered from head to foot. The Indian grew immediately enamored of him and consequently solicitous for his preservation, and two things, like one, I just want to note that he calls, like um, like Megan and I were talking beforehand. It's like, well, I mean, should we call, refer to Yariko as native? Should we refer to her as Indian? And I just want that the, the, the text uses the term American because we're actually before a moment in which America, American would signal like white settler culture. It it meant native peoples of the Americas at this moment, even though the name America, of course, comes from some European Italian, cartographer. Asking, yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but the-
0: that still would be like in the minds of the people using, right? Like as a, you know, discovery, a name of discovery. And obviously, like, that's not what I mean, but yeah. um, that the name is still like underscores that, that it always has the colonial impulse at the front of our minds, even when we say it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. At yeah, this yeah time. Right. Yes, for sure. So, okay, I mean, we we sort of see where this is going. They spend a while doing this Edenic state of nature thing, very horny in a really racist way, quoting further. In this manner, did the lovers pass away their time till they had learned the language of their own. So very romance hours here. Mm -hmm. In which the voyager communicated to his mistress how happy he should be to have her in his country where she should be clothed in silks such as his waistcoat was made of. And be carried in houses drawn by horses, like i.e. carriage, right? Without being exposed to wind or weather, and uh, like that also. So getting measles, right? Getting measles, getting smallpox. Yes, exactly. That I don't know. There is something like interesting about the way uh, that, and and again, racist uh, for sure. But about the way that that is staging like difference and otherness as like a point of attraction in some way. That like they're both they're. They're both like eroticizing what's other about each, and I mean, like, yeah, I think that the way it's like constructing that, obviously, you know, is is is, is quite racist in its outlook. But it's, it, you know, I don't know. It's like it's it's like otherness as a as a, as a point of like enticement or or like sexual attraction or something, mm-hmm.
0: and mutu- mutually right, like yes, that strikes yeah. me as interesting too, right? Yes. That she's like, oh, there's something exotic about how you smell terrible, which is the sort of like what what we think of as being what a lot of uh, people indigenous to the Americas thought about um, the colonial <laughs> population that
1: they yeah, didn't for, no, for sure very often.
0: Also, they just came off ships, like
1: yes, they yeah, exactly, yeah, I, yeah, and you know, the, it's funny. I was just reading I, uh, in a class I'm teaching. I was just reading uh, Montaigne's essays, and he has this way. He's like, you know. We used to take more baths in Europe and that I'm not saying we'd go crazy and start doing I'm just <laughs> saying like maybe washing ourselves more often would be an okay thing to do. <laughs> they
0: did more of that in the fucking the medieval period than yes. they did in the 17th century. It's like bananas that they decided they didn't want to anymore.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, it is, it is really crazy. Um, but yeah, you're right. But the, 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 like the, the colonizing, ga- like the eroticizing colonizing gaze is made to like go in, in two directions yes. at this point. I mean, I guess like the colonizing gaze is only one direction, but like the, the erotics of like otherness is kind of, is, is pointing. Yes. It's, it's like pointing it's, it They're Like the, the sort of like colonial mirror is looking back or something. like
0: Exactly. That, right? He's weird to her and yeah. not just like that. He arrives and she's like, Oh, this is what a real man is, which is like the, yeah. the trope that we're used to seeing.
1: No, for sure. And, and so I do think that like, however racist the language is, and I think it absolutely is. I also think it, it is, it is trying to like work outside of like a very sort of like reductive version of what this kind of like colonial encounter narrative looks like. Yeah, that sounds right to me. But yeah, so they're doing this for a while, having you know, the, again, the Edenic state of nature thing. Eventually, Yariko sees a ship, flags it down, and they're rescued. This was a terrible idea because what does Inkle do from what? Yeah, yes, yeah, I know. Like why, right? It, yeah, that's yes, uh, yeah, and it, it's funny. Uh, like later versions of this, it's it is. It's like he's like, but I, I'm not. I'm not making money. I need to make the money. You know, Ooh. so he's. So like, yeah, he's that his his, his like capitalist logic is this uh, this perpetual pull back to uh, to kind of European society. Because in this
0: version, it does not seem it seems like everything seems fine. Yeah,
1: exactly. No, it, it's very it, it's very under articulated in this in this version. She um,
0: has a real affinity for interior decorating, for example. Yeah, like,
1: Yes, she has. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. Their
0: cave seems nice.
1: It does, yeah, no, it's it yeah, it does. There yeah, they're like why? Why 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 flag the ship down? She does, and what does Inkle do? He promptly sells her into slavery. Of course, yeah. Like what the fuck? So Mr. Thomas Inkle now coming into English territories began seriously to reflect upon his loss of time, and to weigh with himself how many days interest of his money he had lost during his stay with Yarico. upon which considerations the prudent and frugal young man sold Arago to a Barbadian merchant, Notwithstanding that the poor girl to incline him to commiserate her condition told him that she was with child by him but he only made use of that information to rise in his demands upon the purchaser real piece of shit at the end
0: real like, just the worst possible thing you could do
1: yeah and and i i mean i'll get to this in the context but this story is purportedly true up to a point. Um, I mean, I, did, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, we have no way of like really verifying that. But I mean, you know, like Steele thought that this was a thing that had happened and that he was kind of retelling, you know, fictionally. So
0: There are certainly historical accounts in later periods of yes. pregnant enslaved women being, quote, sold.
1: Yeah, no, uh, absolutely
0: for extra money because of the potentiality of the fetus.
1: And no, absolutely, and that's—I mean—that's one thing I'm—I'm I'm getting at that, regardless of whether you know he was most thinking like anti-slavery or not, and I don't think he was. He also was on to like a very like what would become like an infamous feature of you know the. the uh, America's kind of slave, you know, mm-hmm, tra- mm-hmm. transatlantic slave society, uh, which again is, you know, that there, there are like, this isn't uh in any sense, like a thoroughly uh, anti-colonialist text, but I think it is a text that really is trying to be quite alive to the moral horror that is yes. present in empire, you know? And, and, you know, which is it, the fact that this it, it remains relatively still early in the British empire, I do think is, I don't know. I mean, it's no, it's, it's fascinating in some way that it was, you know, it was like, Hey, what, what the, what are we doing? Like, what the fuck are we doing here? You know? So anyway, so that, that's, that's the end. Well, actually not quite, because we actually end back in Arietta's salon, and, and Mr. Spectator's focus very much on her deployment of narrative. So this is the actual end of the story. I was so touched with this story, which I think should be always a counterpart to the Ephesian matron. That I left the room with tears in my eyes, which a woman of Arietta's good sense did, I am sure, take for greater applause than any compliments I could make her. That it it sort of needed to do that and kind of like make this like narrative or something to like That's where I say it's, it's, you know, whatever like anti-slavery kind of critique of empire impulse it has, it's not it doesn't like necessarily land as what Steele thought the main focus was, which isn't to say that that's not the main focus that's embedded within it. But I also don't want to go too far and say that he wasn't thinking of like slavery as problem at all, or like empire as problem. But I just, it's just that it's, it's not, you know, I I don't think it's as coherent in its target as what this story, as we'll talk about in a bit would later become. If that makes sense.
0: again, this is uh d de- I'm not trying to be ahistorical, but it sets up a certain kind of sentimental character reception that's like, damn, I can't help but think of like fucking Richard Wright again yeah. being like you wanna you wanna read an account of racism that can't make you cry because
1: yeah.
0: it's not about the transcendent goodness of the Brown character.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely. And and I think that that, I think that like Wright's, you know, very prominent critique of sentimentalism, which had been, you know, as we've talked about many times, so much at the heart of, you know, abolitionist narratives in the in mm-hmm. the US and the limitations that like, you know, Wright and, and, and many others, uh, but you know, him very very uh prominently diagnosed and that like it doesn't, you know, okay, you cry, You felt bad about this. That's not actually like political action in any sort of meaningful right. way. But, I, you know, so I, I think that, you know, even though we're decades, like 30 or 40 years at least before the development of the, se- the sentimental novel, at this point, you, like, you already see both the sort of potential for, like, a kind of sentimentalized encounter to do that sort of, like, imperial critique and also the limitations in that, like, mm-hmm. it, you know it does it doesn't follow through it dead ends in some way it has to take it into a different register and a question you were asking me about like like romance too, that that like it that it goes mm-hmm. that it's a you know it's a like it's rome and so what we have is like a recognizable like villain slash like unfaithful lover and that's mainly what we're getting out of this uh, less the sort of like historical material realities and yet it is set amid these very undeniable historical and material realities of its present moment right so i don't i don't know quite what to do with that weird balance
0: well and, and it it has the features of romance for me in that it's you know they're 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 paper cutouts intended to do this make us feel happy that love exists until we don't and yeah. and we know romance is actually like one of these genres that has a lot of stickiness mm-hmm. that it won't it won't go away. And yeah. even in like tiny little miniatures like this, I have a hard time not seeing like the knight and the princess.
1: No, I think you're you're absolutely right and it's funny because like we, you know, sort of 20th century accounts of what the rise of the novel is are so uh, or can be so insistent about how like the novel is like sharply divided from romance and and, and like why am I talking about novel when we're talking about like a three-page uh, newspaper story? I just mean that like sort of like the, the 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 realist kind of like impulse like very different from the allegorical romance impulse. And yet, you know, like Walter Scott, Mariah Edgeworth, uh, uh, Sidney Owenson, these uh, like kind of progenitors of like historic, the historical novel were, I mean, those books look like fucking romances, you know, so they're, they're not. And and so like their, their, uh, their impulse to take history and, and material relations seriously was not in, you know, in, in that, and, and we're, you know, again, we're about a hundred years later than the period we're talking about with the and Yarko story, but like that, 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 that romance is necessarily opposed to sort of an inquiry into material relations, kind of historical dialectic that, that, you know, that's, that's kind of a bullshit or false narrative, you know,
0: it just sort of, you know, it's this genealogical account or a Raymond Williams account that like, these things that we actually think are like lost to us are much more persistent in strange ways. Yeah, for sure. So give us the more, the the real context and not just me like completely like <laughs> making it up as I go along.
1: And, and so th- there's a, a few things to talk about here. And, you know, I, mainly I, I want to kind of tell you about a few different versions of the Inkle and Yarko story that have appeared over the. Last 360 years, though, as I noted, with a big, big gap uh, between right before we're into the Victorian era, like I think 1830 or something like that is supposed to be the last time there was like an Inkle in Yoriko like on the stage or whatever. And the 19 fucking 90s, <laughs> which also. Oh, say, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But first, like, so since the Steel version is the one I, I asked you, know, you to read today and in some ways uh, the OG in the sense that it sort of like kicked off the literary fascination with the tale. I'll just say a little bit about what Steel Spectator was. Um, And as we've noted, it's a periodical... Sort of like a hybrid newspaper slash magazine, uh, and Steele co-founds it and edits it with his friend Joseph Addison at Addison Boulevard, right?
0: Sorry, I did my best. I couldn't remember that motherfucker's first name. So yes, like...
1: jo- Joseph Joseph Addison. Um, uh, which I, I have to say, like, jo- like, well, Joseph Andrews, but it's, it's not the most. Com- it's actually not the most common, uh, like 18th century British name. But uh, he like, and so Steele and Addison have worked together before on a previous periodical called the Tatler, uh, like a lot of famous journalistic titles that would be used later sort of come out of this era steel uh, pretty well off bougie dude uh he this is a weird detail he inherited a sugar plantation in barbados which he sold by the time he's doing the spectator like i don't think he owned it long but still and he directly profited off of that right
0: also having Uh, sold it doesn't make it any better
1: no no exactly you know i mean it's like you dude, you directly profited off the slave economy like that money is in your fucking pocket Right, right exactly uh, so yeah, so that's just, that's, that's a weird, that, that's a, that's a weird detail here. So The Spectator only ran for a couple of years, 1711 to 1712, um, which is kind of wild because it, it was one of the most influential periodicals of the 18th century with many, many imitators.
0: I mean, again, like that I've read it, that like as a, as a not 18th century person who has like this pet interest. I know the spectator, you know, like, yeah.
1: yeah. And, and yeah, that also is a title that's been, been resurrected at points too, very much nodding to the, the kind of the, the original. And yeah, so like why, why do periodicals take over this period? Well, one, you have rising literacy rates, you have better printing technology and actual middle-class. The 1700s were kind of the birth of the, the modern periodical journalism because of that. And, and the spectator has a marked petty bourgeois asked ethos, right? <laughs> which I which I've said. It's it's just full of these stories and essays, much in the matter of England Yariko, narrated by Mr. Spectator, who just kind of like observes humanity, man, and there's a real uh, Jurgen Habermas formation of the public sphere mission behind it, right? Like the 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 uh, like the the public sphere is like opposed to like the private, the, like it's it, like this meeting place of like these liberal subjects where we have debates and work things out, and and you know, and, and which is different from later versions of the like social and things like
0: that. It's so int- Like I had never thought it that way, but like that's so it's. it's- this makes perfect sense.
1: And like, I, I like, I don't think you have this periodical culture apps at the sort of like coffee house culture of, yeah, of I, that 18th sounds right London, to me. you know?
0: And so. just like for, for the sake of the record, the name is pronounced Blurgen Blobber Moss.
1: <laughs> Blurgen Blobber Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I have I, that, said that
0: I, in class before and I was like, oh, I'm going to get canceled for that one. Aren't I? <laughs> no,
1: I mean, I, Hey, you know what? I, uh, I'm proud of myself as an 18th centuryist for making it so many episodes without mentioning that book. Uh, It's
0: also like a really important book. It's
1: not, you know. No, it is. It's like, is its argument somewhat dated? Yes. Is it on to, uh, you know, do I wish it were more Marxist? Yes. Always. Is it on to certain things? Yes, it is. It absolutely Absolutely, Yeah. So, yeah, and, and so basically, uh, like, how does Mr. Spectator fit into that? He's going to teach the emergent bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie what it means to be bourgeois. So, like, good taste, middle way, be generous, but not too generous, like fine things, but not gaudy. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, it's I mean, it's just you're trying to suck all of the fun out of the era. It, it's like th- this fantasy of like the best of aristocratic values, barf, now married to the Protestant work ethic. Cool. So so that so that's that's like what this the the story that I just you know summarized was in that that's what this thing is. But so to tell, talk a little bit about other Inkle and Yarico stories um as I've noted and and Steele acknowledges this his source text for Inkle and Yarico is Richard Liggins' True and Exact History of the Island of Barbados from the 1650s. And by the way as as I talk about these various versions of of um Inkle and Yarico I'm drawing a lot of this from Frank Felsenstein's fantastic English trader Indian maid representing gender, race, and slavery in the New world, which is kind of a compendium of all That's of the cool. major. yeah, it, it is. it's it's awesome. it's a it's a it's a it's a compendium of all the major Yaricho stories from the mid 17th century to the early 19th century.
0: It always like this is a diversion, but like it always just cracks me up when some when someone says like, oh, well, you can't work in the 18th century because there's nothing new to say. And it's like, yeah,
1: I know. yes, no, exactly. What no, What sure. What are
0: you talking about?
1: No, no. And and, and like without this, uh, you know, it's a Johns Hopkins University Press uh, without without this work. Um, let me t- actually. Uh, and we're, we're definitely going to wreck this. But let me look at the, the imprint <laughs> on it. Um, 1999. Yeah. I mean, without without like someone having done this. It would have been, it, you know, it would have been really hard to sort of think of of these stories as as, as uh, it nearly the kind of um, like as a unit or something that they that they are like historically, right? Right. So okay. So yeah. So so uh, so. Like in, uh uh Barbados is one of the first English and later British colonies in the Caribbean. Um, actually, just last year, Barbados cut its last ties with the British monarchy. That's so right. Park. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and yeah, it's, I think, I think St. Kitts and Nevis was the first British West Indian colony, and then Barbados a few years later. I think we're talking the 1620s. Mm-hmm. So um, Ligon arrives to Barbados in a period of transition from a tobacco plantation economy, which had largely relied on indentured servants from Britain, to a, the much more labor-intensive sugar cultivation, which uh, needed large-scale plantations to be profitable.
0: It's also incredibly difficult and dangerous, right? Like incredibly involves- difficult and
1: dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, and labor intensive from from start to finish. Um, right. It's and, like and also-
0: it's like those U.S. macro crops of of cotton and tobacco. Like they're so yeah. labor intensive, so dangerous.
1: Yeah, no, and and also uh, because of the fact that it required so much acreage, it also meant that they stopped planting nearly enough food on the West Indies, which you can imagine the effect of the diet on the laborers. Yeah, it's yeah it's yeah horrible. Yeah, anyway, we just I, one of my classes we just read Candide, and where Voltaire has this uh, really like brutal like uh, satiric point about yeah, I mean it's the violence of the slave system, but like apparently what motivated him to do that was Voltaire loved just like dumping sugar in his coffee and then he read uh Montesquieu on the Code Noir and was like, What wait, what the fuck? What am I supporting with this? Right. You know, so
0: although I would also add, sir, coffee?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. No, for sure. No, but but there's mean, another just, problem like, here. I, I mean, no, no ethical consumption under capitalism. No ethical consumption, totally. like hardcore under like 18th century imperial capitalism. You know, right. But, and also that you would be
0: that you would be able not to see the other side of that is really yeah, funny to me.
1: It is no, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And particularly when you just you just saw like the one piece of it, right? That uh, I mean, yeah. not to be able to put two and two together. But yeah, so it's the transition to sugar in the West Indies that really accelerates the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, Felsenstein tells us that uh, when Ligon gets there in the mid uh, 17th century, whites still do outnumber enslaved Africans on the island, but but that's starting to change. And by the 18th century, the enslaved population is vastly larger than the white population. I mean, on some islands, it was like by a factor of 10 at least its uh, indigenous peoples in the caribbean were enslaved too uh, early on but through displacement from the islands the fact that so many of them had been killed by europeans or died of diseases introduced from europe and and just the kind of sheer scale of labor needed just the number of 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 people you needed to make it, so the sugar monoculture work increasingly the enslaved in the west indies are brought from africa um or or are the uh, the descendants of those brought from africa and that's important to the way in which the Arco story changes over the next 150 years. Mm-hmm. So, as you can imagine, Ligon's book is extremely racist. Uh, he he also has what, this absurd yeah I know right like yeah it's, <laughs> like yes yeah, so we said earlier true and exact history that's a that's a red flag for you at this yeah yeah he has this absurd portrait of the virtues quote unquote of the already uh, uh, white supremacist platter class. You know, just there are these visionaries who knew how to manage the land and could put aside their their political differences from Europe, like whether they were parliamentarians or cavalier uh, like so Ligon. And actually, this is I this is a very this is a very like of the 1650s and Barbados thing. Like Ligon was a royalist, a cavalier who kind of hightailed it to Barbados when Charles the was executed. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. probably wise.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: yeah. But, Except but for also, that it, whole enslaving people thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Well, and, and but but also, like, you know, because that Civil War era was so, uh, you know, there were so many changes of fortune. A lot of like people would support in parliament also wound up in Barbados. So it, it's a it, oh. it, it's a melting well, pot.
0: It, it, did, you it did sort of go back and forth for a little bit there.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, yeah. And, and Lillian, he just does all these elaborate racist taxonomies of whether indigenous people or Africans are a better labor force he seems really distrustful of English indentured servants for their propensity to revolt and burn your plantation down, which I think, you know, might also reflect the decidedly less draconian laws governing indentured servants, you know, I mean, bad, but not chattel slavery bad. <laughs>
0: you know, right. Not f- you and all your generations.
1: Yes. It, no, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think there, there may have been some other factors explaining why why that was the case. So anyway, uh, one of the plantations where Ligon stays, he meets an enslaved woman named Yariko, And we start with this gross as fuck racist description, which I'll quote just briefly to give a sense of what the history looks like, uh, but also the way like Ligon's history looks like. But also the ways in which Yariko is like always already sexualized um, in this kind of woman version of the noble savage myth. Mm. So this is what Ligan says. It's very gross. We had an Indian woman, a slave in the house, who was of excellent shape and color, for it was a pure bright bay, small breasts. Like a horsey? Of, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. That's yep, that's what he's doing.
0: Sorry, uh, I'm the, not I'm not trying to make this worse. I'm just no, trying to no, sort of no, like you're, fill n- it, it in.
1: No, you're right. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. With the nipples of a of a porphyry color, this woman would not be wooed by any means to wear clothes like yeah. Yeah, cool. That but- actually
0: does get the the erotics of American Indian native male bodies is is really important too, right? So it's like it's mm-hmm. not in this case, it's like just centralized on women.
1: It's Rousseau's yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: whole bag. He's like, look at the hot guys.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, that's, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and, so, right, and, and what, it's also, like, the, the, the way that kind of sexualization works, like, that not works, but is like, present across medium, so, like, Legan thinks he's doing history, like, you see that in these, like, social contract, like, <laughs> state of nature, like, accounts, you see it in, like, literature, so it's, like, you see, like, these kind of, these, these, these white supremacist structures and forms, like, emerging, like, across, sort of, like, discursive forms, mm-hmm, which is, mm-hmm. uh, but, I mean, it is, I think it is. Is really central to the way in which uh, you know how, how we understand like how race gets constructed right
0: I'm sorry I believe that books should be read absent in all context and do TS Eliot <laughs> hours in which we draw only on the common feeling or whatever the fuck is phrase yeah is.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah oh the, the this is why game. new
0: criticism is useless
1: yeah new criticism yeah well context is stupid yeah yes yeah, th- thanks man. But, but yeah, so like this person in Ligon's account is Yarico, and, and the story Ligon gives is much the one that Steele would repeat. Yarico saves an English merchant from being killed by her people, get, falls in love with him, gets sold into slavery. And this is, this is from Ligon. But the youth, when he came ashore in the Barbados, forgot the kindness of the poor maid that had ventured her life for his safety and sold her for a slave who was born as free as he. And so poor Yarico, for her love lost her liberty. Unless you think Ligan is on his way here to an actual moral revelation, like, hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this and this is fucked up, Yoriko reappears later in the history to help Ligan remove chiggers, which are these burrowing insects that have gotten into his feet. And he, at that point, seems to have entirely moved on from the oh, tragic nice. history he gave, right? It's because like,
0: he has this turn of phrase that, as freeborn as he, is actually like this lovely yes, meditation yes. that I yeah. think, I mean, it is. I will I will admit that it is like that's liberalism. Yeah. Yes. And it's it, that is. But but that's like none of us are outside of liberalism, right? Like we can't imagine that that ideology yeah. would not have purchase here. And
1: I think that another thing that it shows us is that locally recognizing a moral abomination coming out of the slave system did not necessarily mean like a thoroughgoing critique of the system as a whole, like and and which also very I mean because you like a lot of like fucking apologists for slavery will be like well we just know better now they you know for their time it's like no 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 like they, they fucking they saw this shit like they firsthand know. there were plenty who like were very from the uh, beginning uh, you know cr- like th- this is completely fucked up and, and uh, but you know but but there's all there's just, you know and i mean I, I, like you can, i'm sure you, we can point to lots of periods in human history where the same holds like uh, oppression tolerated even like it, when, when it's like when it's lo- even it's local like uh manifestations but also a systemic ones are like readily apparent and still people like reconcile themselves to it in some way right
0: right that they can absolutely live with the paradox of this this line and it's sort of like liberal conception that this this woman is as as person as much human and free in a person as yeah. the white person nonetheless is a non-person by yeah. being enslaved right so it's like you can totally live with that you can absolutely live with her being a person and not
1: yeah yeah and and, and so i think that it, like in it, that in and of itself is one reason why it is so sort of interesting to look at the evolution of this, of this tale, because it does, I, I mean, I think it just, it shows it's like a point of evidence or something, but in this kind of like tension between sort of like structures at like structures of oppression, uh, like the individual within, but also like the, this sort like the, the way kind of critiques, either do or 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 not mounted and how people kind of like can reconcile themselves to the, to the, to the the horrific, you know,
0: and that it is difficult to render the structural, but also like that, you know, people do it all the time.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Yeah. And there are lots of texts, many that we've talked about that are more than capable of doing that.
1: Absolutely. So as I said, Steele's version is the next major instantiation. And from the time Inko and Yarico appears in the spectator in 1711, it gets repeated a ton in print and visual culture, and, and not just in English. So, for example, a very well known uh, 1780 illustration for Abbé Reynal's Histoire de Du uh, which is, which is a, I mean, I would just say, like, some people were, uh, you know, very critical of it. I mean, that is a flat out anti imperialist text. It's like an amazing document. But, like, there's this, there's this illustration of, like, slavery in the West Indies, which shows the Yarraco story. And as the movement to abolish the slave trade grows in Britain, again, Parliament would finally abolish it in 1807, and then slavery throughout the British colonies in 1833, Yarico gets typed increasingly as Black or African, and the story is read increasingly as an abolitionist story. And by the 1780s, that's really good. Like m- abolitionism is kind of going mainstream in the British metropole. Um, like, I mean, you have like the print, like uh, when Alauda Equiano writes his uh, his, his autobiography, yeah. like the, the the Prince of Wales, like signed on as a subscriber. So it is, you know, it, it's become a very right. mainstream sort of political movement. And and so like maybe the most famous adaptation of the Inkle yarico story uh, from that period is George Coleman's comic yes comic 1787 inkle and yoriko and opera which definitely tried to do abolitionist discourse and was kind of welcomed as such also like wildly racist (laughs) at the same time right so like
0: hard not um, to yeah right in this context
1: yeah exactly yeah i mean well right it's like how what's the not yeah what's What's the
0: not racist
1: version racist version of this i know and to be clear, like George Coleman was no kind of radical. Like this, this is like the Andrew Lloyd Webber of the, the British <laughs> 18th century. Right? So, so at Inkle and Yariko at opera is wild. Uh, like Yariko gets a lady in waiting named Walski, whom at early reviewers, like, wait, she's, she's. Po- Polish? Like, whilst she's,
0: she's Jackie Mason. on.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. I know you said, yeah, that, that yes, it's, no, it's not, it's a d- different, uh, different European light. This is actually a, a, a Yiddish joke, right? I um, think that yeah. they're
0: doing Yiddish theater.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, like neither of those are true. That's just how Coleman tried to racistly do a name he thought sounded vaguely Indian for some reason. The the plot is convoluted and mad dumb, but basically Inkle, as in Steele, he's obsessed with interest as the bad capitalist of so much 18th century British fiction. And to be clear, fucking A with that, right? Uh, oh, that, sure. that, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that part's Yeah, that's good politics right there. But anyway, when he sells Yariko, his treachery is discovered by his uncle, the fucking governor of Barbados. This character named Sir Christopher Curry, who says things you definitely expect the governor of a slave colony to say, like, I can't help thinking the only excuse for buying our fellow creatures is to rescue them from the hands of those who are unfeeling enough to bring them to market. Which, I mean, okay, so I mean, there is like a self-servingness there that might be part of it, but it's just like, yes, I don't think the fucking governor of Barbados in the 1780s was an anti-slavery position. I don't think so. Yeah, well, Sir Christopher shames Ankle into taking Yariko back, and they live happily and racistly ever after. Again, barf. Like what? And and that abolitionist play is is absolutely drawing on uh, like a ton of racist tropes for its humor. So like most of the black or indigenous characters are played by white actors, which was true, you know, very much in the mm. in the late 18th century. Uh, you do mean the
0: forever. You mean yes. the Up to now,
1: yeah, up to yes, up to now. No, for sure. I mean, there, like, there, there were, there were very, um, like, there were occasionally like black actors in 18th century Britain, but it's like playing sure. mi- playing minor parts, and it was like something that people commented on. It's like, oh, that that African character was actually played by a black person. You know, that it was it was you know it was it, it like it it bared comment in the way that the the, the like blackface or brownface just did not right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just like, uh, you know, too stuck in my own mind and just, you know, native people are like still played by fucking Italians or whatever.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. Exactly. I mean, it's not it's not like this. It's not like this is actually gone in any kind of meaningful way. And yeah, so like a lot of quote unquote jokes revolved around white characters getting smudged with makeup when they kiss like great. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah um and the play ends with a song in which a white servant character leaves us with this line let also the 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 music is do you know the muffin man which is insane um let let yeah I know I know I know let patty say a word a chambermaid may sure be heard sure men are grown absurd thus taking black for white to hug and kiss a dingy miss <clears throat> will hardly suit an age like this unless here are some friends appear who like this wedding night so make up the I mean it like okay. it's this weird like oh like wait like we were not, we won't do miscegenation unless you're you were married? okay with that like what yeah what's unless that? you're married unless you're yeah 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 like well right' we're, like well unless some friends appear who like this wedding I guess it means that like if you're okay with the sort of like interracial pairings then that you know then 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 fine but we're not you know it's it's this weird I don't I don't I have no fucking clue what to make of that ending or frankly that entire. Again, comic opera. So, uh, anyway, just wrapping up with the context here Coleman's play is a huge hit. Uh, oh, and and, and, and <laughs> it's like, of course it is. I know. Yeah. It's, well, and I was, look, I love the 18th century. The stage in the 18th century was a fucking like dark time. <laughs> like, I mean, this. Excuse like, me.
0: Mr. John Gay, who is responsible for well, almost certainly my favorite The that grew opera. into the the best adaptations of anything ever.
1: No. And, and, and also the early 18th century, which is still kind of doing the restoration was great. It's like, there's yeah, a lot early. like with, with, the licensing act would basically, you, you know, that you, you, had to, you, you know, you basically this huge, like affordable, like kind of censorship process really sort of kiss. And, and, and like, that's what like Henry Fielding is doing drama um, in the 1730s. Yeah. And then it'd be like, he just got like, so sick of the censorship. That's why he like switches to the novel. And so like, I was like, just but, getting
0: spiky for Afro on Afro Ben's behalf. And then I remembered yeah. like that's like way
1: early. Yeah, yeah. That's what no, no, no. Like restoration stage. Fantastic. Early 18th century stage. Great. Late 18th century stage. <laughs> boring as shit. <laughs> <laughs> boring as shit. I mean, it's not, like the school for scandals kind of great. And then there's uh, this uh, a, like A.T. Uh, East India Company play called the, the, the NABOB, which is awesome. But a lot of it's just fucking abysmal. But yeah, so huge hit, uh, and it was really taken as having this strong abolitionist statement at it. But after the slave trade is abolished, Ingle and Yarko kind of disappears from both the stage and print until, until it is revived in 1997 in Barbados with a largely black cast, a decidedly carnival theme to it. And with Coleman's music like rescored for steel drums, this production was prompted by a black Barbadian historian, Kevin Arthur, who was doing research in the United States and came across Coleman's play. It was staged at a place called Holder's House, which is a former sugar plantation that hosts an annual Whoa. opera season. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've only been able to find one short clip of this production, which I, I said to you. Which is a shame because it sounds just absolutely fascinating around a lot of ideas, including the meaning or stakes or potentials of retelling this story and this history, in you know what is now an overwhelmingly black modern Caribbean state. Yeah, and that's and, and also there's some even further offshoot like the like after that revival, um, it, it, they there was a, another play Yarico written, which is put on in London, I think 2015. Um, so anyway, but yeah, so that's that's that is the 360 year history of this of this story
0: it's so bananas that it's like not really I i don't mean not around but that that it's become quote minor is really yeah. interesting
1: yeah well i mean partially it i, I well I, okay i mean so like this doesn't explain why it disappeared in the 19th century when like racism was not a problem <laughs> you know like right. mean, not that not the races does it still uh you know in fact uh you know so much so much media forms but you know, I, like I do want like, you know, yeah, like p- staging Coleman's play as it's written. And again, I, d- I don't want to speak much about that 1997 production because I've only been able to see that one small clip of it, which is like quite fascinating. But like, yeah, like how like how would you do that in a way that, you know, it's like, well, what the hell is this racist garbage from <laughs> 1980, you know, right? But then that like, yeah, that at the, you know, in the, it, that this was taken as being so anti-slavery and so like abolitionist at its moment of production. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, what, like what abolitionist uh, literary, well, you know, like white abolitionist literature, like, I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I mean, how many fucking right. racist tropes are like central to that?
0: I mean, it's, <laughs> it's weird to say it's dominated by them, but it is dominated by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talk we were talking earlier and and throughout, like so what what's at stake or like what purchase does it have to read this as a non-expert? Yeah. Because and I'm I'm the weirdest version, right? Which is like a non-18th century expert, but somebody who does think quite seriously about the construction of nativeness as its own thing, but also about racialization as this like really pretty well. It's not actually very long. It's quite recent and modern, but an invention that moves across time, that has a genealogy.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And and I mean, one reason why 18th century studies is so like vibrant and interesting today, frankly, why I wanted to do it, is because... No one's doing the fucking age of Johnson and like Pope Swift hours. And, you know, full disclosure, I love all of those guys. But, you know, I mean, I was drawn to the 18th century because I'm very interested in empire, its emergence, its critiques and the imbrication of empire and capital. And like, this is a foundational moment for thinking about that. So if you want
0: to read books by women? like yeah go be an 18th century yeah. Like. yeah
1: yeah no no exactly. yes and yeah just yes i mean uh, uh, uh like an authorship which is like far beyond the the sort of like old version of like of just a handful of like white dudes um and, and just like gender constructions that are like weird and like getting worked out in these, you know, in in, in ways that are really compelling. Also but,
0: nobody keeps their pants on ever, and I think
1: that's no, great. No, I, I know, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's always it's always funny to uh, like get what have uh, you know, someone who's only read like the the oldest stuff they've read is Victorian fiction to like hit the mood from Shandy, let alone like Rochester or something, right? <laughs> but, or uh,
0: that they like that, you know, there are periods of time where You know, in the in the U.S., like early Americans, pretty steamy, and then and then the eighteen seventies are like, well, it's not very steamy. (laughs) Certainly not that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No, not at all. Except
0: Walt Whitman, obviously. You know.
1: Yeah. Yes. And 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 H.M. Herman. but uh Billy Budd, Jesus Christ. He is,
0: the, he is the weirdest man. Also, that wasn't published until what, 1921 or something? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, yes, yes. finished in the like early 1890s, but yeah, not not published until the 1920s. But but yeah, I mean, so I like I why I find this archive so interesting to work on is because for clues it does give us into yeah. I mean, how do like systems of oppression that we still live with sort of like, co- like you know, are brought together in the first place? Um, what are kind of like resistance points to that in its its earliest moment? Um, and yeah, I mean, like in some ways, like, I mean, you know, like, yes, I mean, racism is racism. But, you know, racism in like the United States context, the stakes of it, why it's reproduced in the way it is, who it gets reproduced by has specific kind of material features to mm-hmm. it. And so looking at this very early moment where that kind of thing is contested, I, you know, it like I don't I mean I I couldn't say neatly what it tells us, but it certainly tells us something about about that, right?
0: I think it helps us to see that something that might otherwise not be recognizable to us as racism or that the character whose race is fungible over the way that it's or the time that it's times that it's been in print is really important for how we reflect now that we don't take race as a given or as a ca- or as a series of categories that are gra- that are like fundamentally grounded in something but that are like invented wholesale as features of you know the colony and the cap and capitalism and then the slave trade and manifest destiny and that these things are invented with with reasons for having done so mm-hmm. and don't sit neutrally and i think This book really shows us that because she's anything to anybody, right? Like she's what we want her to be depending on who writes this book Mm -hmm. or the story. And so to have called her American signifies something different than to have called her Indian.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt.
0: Those categories, even calling her American shows us the artificiality of racial categories that have to be invented. Mm Mm-hmm. For reasons of persuasion, and th- that they're they're motivated by material circumstances.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, and and on the on the the American thing, I'm thinking the uh, the famous series of illustrations of the continents from the 18th century, like Europe has a, like, and they're they're all like portrayed as goddesses but like oh, america right. america is is a native woman that 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 is what america is like means like like prior to like the formation of the united yep. states and again, you're right. I mean, the name itself is colonialist, uh, and it's, you know, in multiple registers. I mean, one, like the name yes, yeah, an Italian dude, but also that it's, you know, it's, it's a facing, like so much like difference that they by like, like, you know, creating this category, but it's not, you know, but it's also very different from the post manifest destiny version of that. right? Like how, yeah. how, how people from the United States, like, you know, call ourselves American, which is, really weird right very um, you know so yeah well no i i think that's true and 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 the other thing you know that even in like Ligan, which is not this is not a text in any way meaning to challenge slavery i mean he's there to fucking directly profit off it and and yet like is sort of forced to acknowledge the like the just the, the moral horrors of it and yet that that does that that doesn't like me you know it's i think it would it would be uh It's really convenient to think of like, well, oh, if only you can see you make someone see uh, like some illogic. Mm-hmm. in a system of oppression, then clearly the system will, fight. I mean, I think that's like so much of like liberal, you know, uh, like that, 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 we win these by like, uh, we, we, by exposing we, we,
0: hypocrisy.
1: Yes. Hypocrisy. Or that it's like that fighting oppression is primarily like a rhetorical exercise rather than like yeah. a material, you know, and often that like demands violent, <laughs> like violent mm-hmm. re- resistance and stuff. And, um, and, and also that is just like, so pervasive and I mean, we call it a system of oppression because it is systemic. And so it does, you know, like, yes, I mean, it could be it could be a really fruitful place to begin a critique and maybe a liberatory movement even from like a kind of like local recognition of like a moral horror but like that that at best that is just the beginning of the process right yes
0: like, totally that's a version of consciousness raising if we want to put it that yes, way it's yes. like how many people are the guy who is you know john brown who like hangs out with black people and it's like well this is a moral wrong and
1: then is <laughs> john brown you know <laughs> like Look, when I was a fucking teenager in the nineteen nineties, in like AP US history, the line on John Brown was still like he was a crazy person that like, and it's like, yeah, I mean, crazy, yeah. awesome, like, you know, right, like, exactly. Like, like, I mean, yeah, it's like, I mean, what, what the fuck do you want someone to do? Like, you actually recognize slavery for what it is, like. How are you not going to take up arms to fucking destroy it, right? Right. You if that's know, but,
0: what you do after a change yeah. of consciousness, then a change of yeah. consciousness is necessary and fine and I don't care. And that's yeah. like yeah. great if yeah. that's where that gets you.
1: Yeah.
0: Who are we? But yeah. But it's equally important that a story like this shows us that like the colonial ideology can both hold true that an enslaved person is a person and not.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And
0: exactly. that it's actually more terrifying to think that than to think that people were just unilaterally dehumanized.
1: Yeah. No. It, that yeah, it can
0: absolutely. be both. Yeah. In the mind of the uh, of the colonizer or the slaveholder, it's just like that's horrifying.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the the sort of like strategic motivations for. Um, like, the development of, like, biological racism in, in the 19th century in the U.S., right, is, um, like, as, like, abolition is, is growing, it's like, oh, shit, like, um, okay, well, so now what we're postulating is just this, like, you know, this this basic, like, inferiority, and that's right. what, but, but, like, that's, like, a, like, that develops as kind of a back formation to, like, when, but, but like, to sort of support, like, this long history of kind of white supremacism, but for, you know, two centuries or more like that wasn't needed to still have the white supremacist system right. in place. Right. That we could like, yes, like, yeah, you got Lincoln being like, Oh, as freeborn as I, but then that was not troubled by it. It's, you know, it, it's only at the crisis point around like the lead up to the civil war in the United States that like, they start really like going further and further with that. But you know, they didn't need to. Right. For centuries, you know?
0: So, well, and that in the U S it's like, well, wait, are native people like, m- romantic romanticized or warlike or yeah, 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 is yeah. this you know a notion of the domestic dependent whereby like we have to protect these people or or are they you know going to go kill Engels wilder
1: <laughs> yeah or yeah whatever? yeah yeah no, right. I mean, how, like, how, how many Extremely white supremacist, like romanticization of the native, are there, including like white assholes? Oh, well, you know, I'm part, you know, well, like there's so many white races. Lo- I mean, you, you know, right, like totally. Love, yes, this, 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 the creating this, uh, the, you know, because you know, for, for I think many reasons, one of which it like it, it create, like, like post facto creates some kind of like quote unquote autochthonous claim yep. to like, you know, the land that you've appropriated or that your ancestors appropriated, you
0: know. And I think it's also a way of like completely rehabbing blood discourse, frankly. Yes, yes, I think that is absolutely like, and I don't really mean in the sort of like, it's not the same as a biological racism, although like a certain group of people would say it's identical to it. But it's like, no, you're really trying to rehabilitate blood quantum conversations by saying like, my great grandmother was.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And that is... Racist.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly.
0: It doesn't mean anything. Like, I just mm. no. Don't do twenty three and me. Why? Why do it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: It's just pointless. Um. Well, thanks for having us read this. Like, it was just really good. Then I learned a lot. But, um, are we going to talk about the weirdest adaptations now that we've talked about <laughs> our our personal favorite weird adaptations of stuff? Yes. Besides the Ingle and Yarko opera.
1: Yeah. So yeah, with with uh, Katie, our co- our comedy writer not here, we don't have a as usual. We don't have the game, but we have like you know a we- weird stuff uh, that uh, that that's fun to for us to to talk about. And uh, so we, we had this idea for for wrapping up today. I was like, well. I could talk about the Pierce Brosnan Robinson Crusoe, which is so bad that even I, who have written on Robinson Crusoe, couldn't (laughs) finish it. And it has the like production. You know what happens. You know what happens. It also has the production quality of a fucking soap opera. It's bad. (gasps) Uh, But so it. Wigs do
0: not a movie make.
1: No, no. Instead, I will give you both an. Awesome 18th century adaptation and a terrible one. The awesome one, uh, I, I'm teaching a Tristram Shandy class right now. And I started with uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon's uh, delightful A Cock and Bull story. So good. which is it is amazing and it's like yeah it's a movie about trying to make tristram shandy into a movie which uh i mean go back and listen to the tristram shandy episodes for to to see why that is so great but it's just the the meta-ness of tristram shandy like kind of necessitates that extra layer of meta-ness to sort of get at what it's doing thematically so that's a good version of it. Also, it has Steve Coogan uh like hung upside down inside a giant fake uterus being born. amazing so, yeah, Amazing, a,
0: amazing <laughs> moment. Just yeah, amazing so good. Moment. Is it Michael
1: Winterbottom? Yes. Yeah, he's okay. yeah. yeah well, we, we, well, Michael Winterbottom's the director. Yeah, that's right. Also, Coogan and Bryden. I like if you if you enjoy the trip movies, they kind of do that as like yeah. Wal- well, as actors played Walter and uh and Toby Shandy. Um no, the terrible one, and, and I'm indebted to uh, to a stu- one of my students, Nick uh, from uh, from from one of my previous courses, uh, who who wrote about this. Um, 1940 Lawrence Olivier adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which is god awful. Um, like it's god.
0: How do you make Pride and Prejudice bad?
1: Well, there's a few I- things. <laughs> First of all, uh, the film codes, and again, that's I, my student taught me this. The film codes of the period in the United States basically said you couldn't portray clergy in a bad light. So that transforms Mister Collins into a librarian, which makes no fucking sense. Like it's I mean, <laughs> yeah, like a cler- Like the 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 cultural and economic position of the clergy is central to that character. So I mean, that in and of itself is we. I mean, it's and it's just very. It's it's very 1940. In a bullshit way. The other thing is um, it's not period appropriate. They all look like they are doing antebellum 1850s balls. And yeah, that's because in in making this MGM just raided the costume closet and got all these gone with the wind and civil war costumes that they slapped on the Bennett sisters and Mr. and Mr. Darcy. It's fucking terrible. Again, um, even as a, uh, uh, you know, as, as someone who's like fascinated by Austin and, you know, written about Austin and stuff. I could not finish it. It was so bad, and I love Lawrence Olivier too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm a I'm a clothes whore, and I just probably watch Gone with. I mean, Gone with the Wind is so bad.
1: But oh god, it's fucking horrible.
0: It's an abomination. It's an abomination. It's just useless. And even for clothing, which you know what the budget is on that, and it's like yeah, just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I now okay. I'll talk about the two that I was actually going to talk about, but I do want to bring up, just just do like the dork hours conversation of the John Gay, If You Don't Know a Beggar's Opera, which was then redone by Bertolt Brecht.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: As the Three Penny Opera, and then with the music that was written by Kurt Weill, and has since been adapted to the stage a number of times. It's amazing. It's a perfect, perfect Brechtian.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely astonishing. And the most recent one, the translation from the German, is done by friend of the pod, Wallace Sean. So.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If
0: you think the 18th century theater is an awesome early 18th century, it has a profound influence in its very specific class politics.
1: Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, like every every layer of that adaptation history you just gave is awesome. So that's great. <laughs> right. It just
0: gets like slightly better and more socialist every time. Yeah. Right? Um so that one's all of the like do a genealogy of that. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um and then I had been thinking very theater-wise, so that's why I came to the ones that I did. My potentially favorite adaptation of something that I am interested in is the the Luis Valdez Zoot Suit movie that comes from the Valdez Zoot Suit play. Oh, okay. Which was then, has recently been revived the um, last 10 years. And um, the movie, the, speaking of Bertolt Brecht, Valdez is is transparently indebted to him. The movie is defamiliarizing in the sense that it looks like a play but like there are moments where there are audience, and then there are moments mm-hmm. when it disappears. So you have this mm-hmm. like really amazing diegesis that they you're constantly having to track. It's leftist, of course. Yeah. Um, everybody loves Edward James almost. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's and I my <laughs> I made my husband watch it, and then I was telling my dad, and my dad was like, "Do the politics of it hold up?" And I was like, "If they might be better now."
1: yeah they're amazing no, well, yeah no that that's how that's fucking rad yeah no i, I want to see this it's
0: fucking rad teatro campesino is fucking rad uh-huh they're leftists and yeah, yeah. amazing movie uh i tried to teach it i taught it in my very first version of my class in la and my students didn't like it and um i cried because <laughs> don't teach things oh, yes. that you love With that degree of like personal attachment is what I learned. That
1: that's that's uh, that was one of my hesitations in teaching Tristram Shandy, but I I I think they're enjoying it so far. So
0: it's the only time that I was like, I'm taking, I'm never doing this again.
1: Yeah, right, right.
0: So that's like my favorite, and then of course the John Gay, and then my the one that I have to mention because it's so weird and also because it's so me is Carmen Jones, which. is (laughs) is <laughs> I know right
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: is an adaptation of Carmen sort of yeah it is from 1954 and it has mystery's hottest man Harry Belafonte <laughs> yeah,
1: right it's yeah
0: and because this is something that makes perfect sense he's dubbed
1: uh huh. right you,
0: because if there's anyone who's singing <laughs> voice you should dub it's Harry
1: Belafonte yeah like wait what the fuck what? what? Yeah. yeah. Gary Belivante is awesome with awesome politics. I yeah. mean, just like all around awesome.
0: Crazy hot and Dorothy Dandridge. And there is a later version of Carmen called Carmen, a hip Hopera, in which Beyonce makes her film debut. It's also not very good. So somebody do a, um, <laughs> do, do, do tell us about, do, send us a long email about uh, the history of adaptations of Carmen. Yeah. That also has Yazine Bey in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Send us that email. <laughs>
0: Zay is like the most like speaking of middle brow versions of opera, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We're gonna do a whole opera episode next. If you're not, if you're interested in the weird shit we like.
1: Well, I mean, and we we have an opera here, right? That's a, a com- nice comedy based on a <laughs> comic.
0: <laughs> so, right, Based I, I on do, totally I do. reasonable.
1: I do hope somewhere a DVD of that 97 uh, Barbadian production exists. Cause I, I mean, just the, the last song, I'm like, what, what is happening? I want, I want to see more of this, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds great. Uh, anyway. So this has been better than dead. You can find me on Twitter at Teslasaurus and Tristan at TJ Schweiger and Katie at Katie Crywo. you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at better Ed pod and email us at betteredpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. But only like tell us one of these weird stories of things that get adapted. You do it <laughs> yeah. seriously, like do do your story version of it because something's gonna be more fun. There's nothing more fun than John Gay <laughs> and Bear told Brecht. But there's yeah. gonna be other fun shit out there.
1: Yeah, no, the the gay the gay trajectory is not like that's fucking amazing. <laughs> it really is.
0: There's no there's it only gets better over time
1: yeah yeah
0: oh perfect um our intro music is left bronstein by the redskins and used with their permission our logo was created by jane bonsack of jb design and content please rate and review and subscribe and next up we have pilgrims progress you don't have to read it we'll read it we'll tell you it's fine and then a season five wrap up so uh thank you comrades